Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhere to Apologetics. Super pumped you're joining us today to have Dr. Matthew Ramage joining me from Benedictine College in Kansas. Dr. Ramage, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Great to be back, Zach. It's going to be a fun time, I think. Yeah, I'm super pumped. And today we're going to be talking about like God and evolution, Christian teaching, Pope Benedict XVI, and all this fun stuff. So Dr. Ramage, just to get things kicked off, can you talk a little bit about like, who you are and like what got you interested in topics like talking about like Christianity and evolution? Yeah, so I'm a professor of theology at Benedictine College, which is a Catholic liberal arts college north of Kansas City. And uh, I've been teaching there since 2009, been thinking about faith and science matters for probably the better part of 25 years. And, you know, as far as evolution goes, uh, it's just really something that I find so beautiful when you look at the history of the world, that God has been preparing the world for man for 13, 14 billion years and life's been developing for the better part of 4 billion years. And, you know, when I teach my students, I have a lot of slides from my travels. And I, I have one with my daughter, Michaela, walking along dinosaur footprints in Utah. And you're thinking dinosaurs were here 100 million years ago. And we wouldn't be here without all of these things that came before that God prepared this, this beautiful garden of the earth for us. So that's kind of, I, I love it just for the sake of it, or, or just being out in my garden. I'm a big gardener and understanding where the flora and fauna have all come from. And uh, we found a little baby fledgling uh, bird yesterday and, and ended up dying, but we have a lot of chickens as well. And understanding the role of death and how all of that fits together in, in creation and the need to pass through this life to get to heaven but then also on a teaching level, I, I find that most students at my college are Christians and a lot of Christians just have a problem of trying to reconcile faith and science. I think especially evolution. I don't think too many people are having a problem with heliocentrism and Galileo anymore. You know, but 400 years ago, that was a problem for people. So, um, and I, I come from the Catholic tradition, and so it doesn't really matter in this case which tradition of Christianity you're from, but the same problems Catholic students are asking that you're evangelical or you're Lutheran or whatever denomination are asking about this. And I just find that actually faith and science should bolster our faith. Uh, the medieval said that God wrote two books, scripture and nature. And instead of being an obstacle to faith, I try to help, help people see that it's actually a boon, that it's something positive for our faith. So that's just a little bit of background anyway. Mm, I think that's super helpful. And I just want to echo um, the beautiful like nature of like the history of the world when we think about it. Because I remember even um, learning about dinosaurs when I was on like first or second grade. And I just remember sitting on the carpet and being like, this is so long ago. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Like these things just were like on the earth. Um, and I think there's something really beautiful about that. I just wanted to echo because I was thinking of that as you were talking about the beauty and thinking about all the species that have come before us talking here today. Yeah. No, I mean, I had to add, I... I have some background in biology, but I ended up getting my degrees all in theology and philosophy. But, um, you know, I was in D.C. at a conference just recently. and I went to the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. I usually go to the air and space, but I went to the natural history this time because they have just a great online and in-person exhibit on the history of humanity. And it was kind of interesting, almost sad. As I was entering the hallway into the exhibit, there were a couple of people fighting verbally very strongly over hmm. whether humans evolved or not wow and it's interesting because as you're about to walk into the exhibit the evidence a lot of it's right there in front of you 
Um, but the, it was interesting that the one person just insisted that they can't have evolved because that would mean trusting the scientists, which would mean distrusting the Bible. And I just thought, oh, no, <laughs> this is really a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible's up to. So I'm assuming we'll talk about that today at mm -hmm. some point. Yeah, I think that's a great point to kind of lead into like the question of like, how does evolution challenge Christian teaching? Because there's a lot of people that when they hear the word evolution, they're thinking this is something just like fundamentally opposed to like Christianity. So like how would people say that this challenges Christian teachings? Yeah, I think it, it gets built in, unfortunately, the concept of atheism and people like Richard Dawkins sort of popularized this. Um, but it, it's fascinating to me that at the time that Darwin first proposed the modern theory of evolution, when incidentally, there was a lot less evidence for it back then than there is today, um, that a lot of leading Christian figures were actually very strongly in favor. So one of my favorites in the Catholic tradition is St. John Henry Newman, who was probably the most influential Catholic theologian of the 19th century. He's a contemporary of Darwin, and he already sees that it fits with the way God tends to work in history, which is he reveals himself gradually. He works through other creatures rather than bypassing the process of nature gradually. But, you know, uh, as far as the challenge goes, I think a lot of people believe that God's not necessary now if we have evolution. And I, this is not a new concern. He didn't know about evolution, but in St. Thomas Aquinas's famous Summa Theologica that a lot of people uh, read even in philosophy classes, the two main objections to God's existence are the problem of evil Mm -hmm. And then that you don't need God because you can explain everything naturalistically. So atheists love to play this card that you don't need God because we can explain all the mechanisms. Unfortunately, Christians fall prey to this because they think of God on the same order of being as humans, as if God was in there tweaking creation. And if we can now explain, say, fetal development is one of my favorite areas we have a pretty good understanding of the various stages of embryology. But it remains true that, like Psalm 139 says, that God knit me together in my, another, my mother's womb. Mm -hmm. And before we were ever created, he knew us, thinking Jeremiah and the prophets. Um, so what, I think the main problem is people think you don't need God. And then the secondary, very related one, is that the Bible seems like it's not trustworthy now because the Bible shows man being created from the dust of the earth, uh, depending if you go with the KJV or, you know, uh, mud or however you want to translate it. Um, and then the idea that Eve came from Adam's rib, it seems that we can't trust that. And it's the same dynamic that happened back with Galileo, that the Bible presents a geocentric, earth-centered universe and the thought of the time, and, and the Catholic Church, in fact, is the one that got infamous for this because we ended up telling Galileo to shut up, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and a, a very mild, but nevertheless, home imprisonment that Galileo received for the science that is now known to be correct. Um, so I think we look to the Galileo situation and we think, oh, no, the Bible, if it's wrong on this point, then the whole Bible might be wrong. Mm. Yeah, I think there's something very um, right about what you're saying and thinking about um, the supposed like conflict. So one of the interesting things and one of the reasons I want to bring you on, Dr. Ramage, is like, you know, like people have talked about like evolution and Christianity um, for a while now. And it's not, not like there's anything close to an answer, but it's like there's yeah. something here. But one of the things I think that's really unique in your approach is like 
you draw heavily on like different like theologians. It's like one of the people you talk about um, in your book, I know, is Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. So do you want to talk a little bit about like who he is first and then like how does he help you when you're thinking about this challenge? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking that. Uh, again, from the Catholic tradition, those of us who are Catholic, we know that this guy's a really major player. If a person's not Catholic, they probably don't know who he is, right? So that's mm -hmm. um, so I want to explain, I guess, from a Catholic point of view, why he's so important then. Um, so Joseph Ratzinger is his, his personal name, and he was um, a professor in Germany, priest, a uh, pastor, a bishop, and he had a major role in the church's Second Vatican Council in the early 60s that tried to update in a healthy way the substance, keep the substance of the faith of Christianity, but also update the way it was presented. So, you know, like we had the Inquisition back in the day and, and all these things that went down with Luther. And uh, so we still want to uphold doctrine as always. But to do so in more of an inviting way and more of a dialogue than anathemas. And, and so Pope John XXIII, who called that council in 1962, said the church now prefers the medicine of mercy rather than the medicine of severity. So Pope Benedict is interesting because he was there. He helped write some of those documents like the one on scripture and divine inspiration of scripture. He served as the right hand man of Pope John Paul II. And then he um, was a, a Bible scholar also. So we've never had a Pope who was so erudite in the scriptures. And that's one of the reasons I got into him back probably as early as 2000. I've been working on him. And uh, a lot of Catholics are into Thomas Aquinas, and I love Thomas Aquinas. But I thought, you know what? Someone needs to present this guy's approach because he's probably the most influential Catholic thinker of the past hundred years. And it turns out the more I dug and I looked at his lecture notes from his courses on creation back in the 50s and 60s, and I went through everything the guy ever said, basically, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it turns out I found his approach to faith, science, evolution, and scripture to be really, really attractive. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm probably biased because I work on him all the time. Um, but I, what I like to do with people is say, like, here's a few different approaches. You know, there's a new book by William Lane Craig, I think is really good. And here's one from the Aquinas perspective called Thomistic Evolution. And, and here's, uh, here's Pope Benedict. Here's my book, you know, and so trying to put together everything the man said in one place um, to show, especially Catholics, that you don't have to reject the strong conclusions of science in order to mm -hmm. be Christian. So I'm curious then, like, what about, like, what is, like, maybe going a little bit more of the details, like, what is his view? Like, what is your view, Dr. Ramage? And, like, how would these views differ than, like, you talked about, like, William Lane Craig, who released a book on, like, um, the historical Adam and things like this recently. So, like, how is this going to be a little bit different maybe than his view? Yeah, I actually really like William Lane Craig's book. Uh, I've not read every chapter. I've read probably half of it. And I didn't even disagree with anything I read in the parts mm -hmm. that I read. Um and for those who are interested in his view, he has some pieces on first things, which are free online that you can access more quickly than his book. Um, but um, as far as the unique contribution of Pope Benedict, okay, let's, um, uh, there's a lot of points here, but let me try to hit on a couple of them. Um, one is he, he looks at the problem of suffering and death in creation. And this is similar to his predecessor, Pope John Paul. And he'll say that, Yes, death and sin are connected, death and original sin, but also there's something 
Trinitarian and Paschal, Paschal mystery, cruciform cross-shaped about the universe. You know, John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, essentially it bears no fruit. Um, so that's even in nature, we've always had death well before humans. And now some Christians think that all death, right, physically came after Adam. But this is, you know, while even a Catholic, we say, I tell students, you can hold that view. It's actually not the traditional Catholic view, even. Just let me back up to Thomas Aquinas for a minute. So in the 13th century, most um, sort of conservative Catholic theologians would hold to Aquinas' position, which is that um, all creation would, would have died naturally, but mankind was specially granted the grace called sanctifying grace to prevent that. Um, almost like a cloak, if you will, um, around Adam. Um, but fast forwarding now back to Benedict. Okay, all of creation, the subhuman, if you will, was, was, it was natural to, to suffer and die. That's very interesting, contrary to what a lot of Christians assume, that lions were never herbivores. Because especially in Pope Benedict, and I would say Aquinas' view, nature has an integrity the fall affects our relationship to nature, but it doesn't actually change physical nature. It causes us to abuse nature. But um, so if you think about that, I'm a big gardener, like I said. So in order to get, um, let's pick what was the thing. Uh, I had arugula pop back up from last year's arugula. That plant has to die. The parent plant has to die. Uh, the seed has to go to the ground and break apart it's just beautiful that jesus uses that image for the nature of things and that's what evolution actually works through is it works through the constant death quote-unquote resurrection process of the natural order so then when you you get to things like pruning right christ in the gospel of john talks about how you have to be pruned to bear fruit it, it's really hard to prune your plants because you think you're going to hurt them or make them, you know, fall backwards. But right now I have some pepper plants I didn't prune. And you see the result is it doesn't bear as much fruit. It gets lanky and it's not as healthy and it falls over. So Christ looks to nature for these metaphors and he's not dealing specifically with evolution, obviously. But that all of creation bears the stamp, Pope Benedict says, of the cross, so then ultimately, like Paul reveals in 1 Corinthians 15, what is sown into the ground is a physical body. What is raised is a spiritual body. So even Paul looks to that imagery of the earth. Uh, and so we wouldn't want to say that Paul knows about evolution or teaches evolution because Pope Benedict is really clear that the Bible is actually not teaching science. And I think maybe that's the main fundamental point of his approach that a lot of Christians, I think, don't see or don't agree with is that the Bible never was meant to teach science. The Bible is concerned with the truths of our salvation. So Pope John Paul II, like Pope Benedict, would speak of there being two compatible sciences, the science of theology and the science of nature. And how as long as we know that each one deals with its proper domain and that they both lead toward God, then we're on the right path. And in fact, that's the way when the church started the universities in the Middle Ages, the idea of uni 
versitas is ordered towards uni, towards one. So God wrote these two books. Each has their own specialty, if you will. And um, so to me, that then helps with scripture because scripture definitely says, right, creation took place over seven days and you get the impression the earth's 6,000 years old. But once you realize through the study of the ancient literary genres in conjunction with what we know from modern science, you don't even need modern science to get this part, that the purpose of it was theological rather than scientific. It just opens up all kind of beautiful vistas into the purpose of scripture. Hmm. So you think then like, when we're thinking about like um, reading Genesis 1 through 11 then, like if we're going to get the kind of view that, you know, we have like a literal six day creation, like a view that leads to like a young earth creation is kind of view of the world. Yeah. Like that's one reading of the text. But when we're looking at this and trying to understand like the nature of the Bible, the nature of Genesis and these texts, um, we have to have almost like a wider lens and try to understand like maybe it's not just trying to give like a theory of everything. Um, it's not like trying to act as a science text. But there's something like more and deeper to the Bible than just like kind of a mere like literal just reading of the text. Yeah, I like that you use the word textbook. Actually, Pope Benedict says explicitly it's not a science textbook. Mm, yeah. And we, we want to think, well, since it's God's word, it should treat everything, right? I think that's a natural, not unreasonable assumptions of our faith to make, except we never actually made that. If you go back to the church fathers like Augustine, I think this leads to your question or point. Augustine didn't read the seven days as 24-hour days, right? We don't even have the sun by which we count 24-hour days on day one yet. So um it it turns out that yeah the, the patristics already read it more of a symbolic nature those seven days um as far as the the broader structure goes in the genre and if i forget your question let me know but <laughs> the the uh the genre um the, the catechism of the catholic church calls it figurative which mm -hmm. is just a fancy way of saying symbolic because symbolic sounds too weak. And again, people are like, well, that's just a symbol. It does sound too weak. Um, some Catholics call it sacramental. It, it, through the visible, it manifests the invisible. Um, I mean, this is going to sound bad at first, but I hope I can explain the meaning of it. Um, a lot of thinkers, including our last couple of popes, John Paul and Benedict, call the first 11 chapters of Genesis mythical. But we had to understand that word because I don't know if you're a fan of Lewis or Tolkien or those guys. A little but, bit. Yeah. So I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. I think he's a good ecumenical figure. And um, C.S. Lewis describes myth, which he writes with his Narnia and space trilogy and whatnot. A myth is a real but unfocused gleam of divine truth falling on the human imagination. So it's, it's real. It gives you the truth, but it's not in the scientific philosophical mode. Um, and he says, well, the, all the ancient cultures had mythology, but the Jewish people were the chosen people. So theirs was the chosen mythology, the earliest vehicle to bring about revealed truths. And this becomes um, just as clear or clear when you read Tolkien and, and G.K. Chesterton, other great 20th century literary masters, that truth is the vehicle God spoke to ancient peoples in the same way that as a friend of mine, Jeremy Holmes puts it in a, a nice book of his, it's that if you were picking up Aquinas' Summa Theologica and you saw the question answer format, you would realize that the, the genre is disputation. 
if you pick up a catechism, whether it be a Lutheran or a Catholic or whatever one, it, it's a pedagogy. If you pick up a science textbook, it's a science textbook. Um, and, and so the genre of this was the same genre that uh, the same literary style that other cultures used. And now, especially crucial is something the fathers of the church didn't even really fully know, or, or in most cases know at all, is that Genesis, it may be myth in the sense of revelation through imagination, but it's also anti-myth. One of the things that Pope Benedict points out is that basically all Bible scholars now know is that there were older creation myths. So I don't know if you ever read these in college, say, but the Enuma Elish and Gilgamesh are examples of Mesopotamian myths that the Jewish people certainly knew. Whether we go back to the old Babylonian empire, Abraham coming from Ur of the Chaldeans and the second millennium, or the Neo-Babylonians where the Jews were under exile, right? Under uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the 500s BC, they knew these myths. And so in part, the biblical account, it's using the same cultural style, but it's revealing the falsehood in those myths. And I could go into a few examples too, if you want. Mm. So let's, let's do this. I'm thinking about for people who may be listening, obviously Adam and Eve are very central to um, how Christians think. Like we're all taught about Adam and Eve growing up and they live in a perfect garden and Eve eats the apple and the sin they're cast out of the garden. So in your view, like, is the, did that happen? Like, is there a historical Adam and Eve? Um, is this more of like, kind of like a myth, not in the sense of like, it's totally false, but like there is this like element of truth, but they're not like historic figures. If you got your time machine and went back to um, wherever the garden of Eden was, however many years ago, like wh where are you with regards to that? Well, I'm a Catholic, so I'm not just saying this because it's a Catholic view, but I actually think this is correct. Um, mm -hmm. The catechism calls it real events and figurative language. Okay. And saying that, though, for Catholics, at least, it leaves a lot of latitude. Mm -hmm. You could take it very literalistically. You could take it as video camera. Um, most, most of us think that's a genre mistake of the highest order, but that's certainly fair game. And, and I like to emphasize to Christians we need to allow latitude like that, you know, like even if we disagree and a, my friend is a seven day creationist and I were the opposite, as long as we're not atheists, right? We're, we're on the same, we're in the same faith. But um, as far as that goes, here's what we, we know is incorrect scientifically is in Genesis envisions a Mesopotamian garden, um, you know, modern day Iraq. And that's not where humans arose, period. I mean, and that's kind of like if, if a person can't get on board with humans arising in Africa, there's not much one can really do at that point because that's extremely well established archaeologically and genetically. Um, so they, the first step is like the Adam story can't be fully literal in that sense. Um, also the time period, right? Um, and I think one of the beautiful things about it is Genesis 1 and 2 it's almost as if the text is signaling us not to read this too video camera-esque because of course we know in Genesis one, man is created last. And then in Genesis two, he's created first and then all the animals are brought to him. So that's a, a signal that even the church fathers already knew it wasn't video. Um, but as far as the, the, like the original sin, I think that Christians need to affirm, yeah, there was a sin at the origin of mankind that brought about disastrous consequences. 
you can get into the nature of what those were. Did it begin human death? Did it was it was it mainly a spiritual death that brought upon? Um, but then the number of first parents comes up. Uh, at least in in my tradition, this is um, described as a monogenism polygenism debate. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for re- listeners not as familiar with that, the idea is was there one first Adam or many? So in the 1950s, the Catholic Church actually addressed this, Pope Pius XII, and he said it's really hard to square polygenism, multiple first humans with original sin. Um, and it's interesting, he said it, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to square it, basically. Um, it's in no way apparent how these are reconcilable. It, so he doesn't say you can't hold that, but he says it's a tough sell. Part of the background that's interesting to the, to the debate there was in the 40s and 50s, we're thinking right during and after Nazism, right? Um, mm-hmm. People had proposed with really zero archaeological or genetic evidence um, that different races arose on different continents independently. This is sometimes called the multi-regional hypothesis. So people who are white use this to then say they were superior to say black people or Asians because they, they didn't have the same origin. Well, now we know actually monogenism is, is in some sense absolutely true that we all came from one place in Africa and mm-hmm. the original humans were actually black. So it's kind of ironic if, if you think about it, that whites being racist. Um, and a lot of us white people, we have Neanderthal blood in us, which is a whole other complex but fascinating issue. Uh, as far as I can tell, you and I both have something like 2% of Neanderthal DNA. Huh. So, um, and the genome wasn't even sequenced until I was done studying biology in college. So this is really interesting to me that now we know that the population out of which the first humans, you could say it was one human or two Adam and Eve, both having the last mutations that made possible their humanity, the true image of God. But they arose out of a population of hominins, proto-humans that would have looked almost identical to them. Uh, And so I I like what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, like, from our perspective, they would have looked savage. They would have looked like, now, not like chimps. They were going to be a lot more upright than a chimp. We diverged from chimps seven million years ago. But they were going to look a lot more raggedy, let's say, than you and I who have collars on our shirts Mm -hmm. and are, are more or less shaved. And um, but nevertheless, they were the full image of God. So there's a lot of latitude in there uh, with regard to how exactly that happened. Um, Some people propose that God took a pair and gave them that last infusion, those last mutations necessary to have religion, relationship with God, art, language, all these things. Uh, It could have happened multiple times and some were dead ends. And so I I think it's healthy to leave latitude, even if I have a certain opinion on what I think happened, um, for Christians to roam in that area or graze in that pasture of meditation. Mm. There's a lot of interesting things here that you've brought up, and I'm just thinking about this. Um, One thing that you talked about a little bit earlier that I wanted to bring back up here because I thought it was interesting. You talked about like the idea of like death and suffering um, and from like some perspectives, like that isn't always a bad thing. 
It's like going back to like, even just going back to Adam and Eve again, thinking about it, like, was it something like when we're thinking about like original sin, where if they don't sin, they still may die. But we're, we're talking, when we're talking about like sin, what that is, is it's a kind of death to like our soul almost. Um, so I'm just curious, could you expound a little bit on what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. So this is again, one of those areas that I'll, I'll tell you about what my opinion is. I'll tell you exactly what I think happened. Okay. Yeah. But then um, I love this image from G.K. Chesterton, um, wonderful apologist for Christianity. And he says that, the, like, the, he's, talking, he's talking about Catholicism here, but I think this applies to Christianity in general. It's like a big playground with high walls around it. The walls are the dogmas, the, the creed, the, mm. the required beliefs. But within that, once we affirm those, there's actually quite a bit of playground. Um, so let me do what I do when I teach this, is I'll, I'll propose four, maybe even five different options. And I'll tell you which one I think is actually correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and one option a Christian can hold is the one that I think is least tenable, which is that Adam and Eve sin, and then everything starts dying afterwards chronologically. I, I think that's basically you can't do any science if you hold that because um, we know through carbon dating, uh, plate tectonics, you name the science, we can see creatures dying for hundreds of millions of years right before man. But that's one option. Um, another option is that this is Thomas Aquinas's that all creatures were going to die. That's just the nature of things. And um, but Adam and Eve were given a special grace. Um, and, and our tradition, Thomas Aquinas calls this the preternatural gifts beyond nature gifts so that they would have continued to, quote unquote, eat from the tree of life and uh, eventually been granted access to the tree of life and been able to live forever. But one of the interesting things about Aquinas that many of my fellow Catholics don't even realize is that he thinks Adam and Eve eventually had to pass on to heaven. So the word heaven or paradise, I think paradise is the misleading one for English speakers. I think many of us hold the view that Eden was paradise as in heaven, but that just was really not the Christian view until I don't know fairly recently. Um, it was the the view was that it was a earthly paradise where we lived in harmony with God. But Aquinas's language in the Latin is our first parents transferendi they had to be transferred to the celestial paradise. And I think he envisions them not dying so much as falling asleep gracefully. Um, and in the Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholic perspectives, the Orthodox are big on this. Um, they believe that the Virgin Mary underwent what they call the, the chemesis or dormition, where because she did not have original sin, she didn't actually die, but she fell asleep. But biblically, we know, like for St. Paul, falling asleep is a euphemism for dying. Um, so they, it could be that they that, that there was not actually death, but there had to be some translation, if you will, to the celestial paradise, because beatific vision can't take place in the present space-time continuum that we're in. Uh, heaven is an entirely other order that's not less than but includes and raises our present. So there's another one. And then the view that I actually think is correct, which is admittedly a very minority position, is, um, is what I think is the view of, of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. Uh, and 
this view is that I, I don't think man was ever going to probably be without suffering in this world. And I think that this is something that has only become possible to really think through very well in the age of evolution. But you think of how, as my wife points out, it would require a, a continuous stream of miracles. Like for example, the people tend to think that Adam had zero pain at all, but did he ever stub his toe? Hmm. You know, um, learning to walk. Did he ever fall down and have his hand hit a rock or a twig or whatever? Did, uh, you know, did they ever get hungry and experience hunger pains? And did mosquitoes ever bite them? So there's several ways you could go on that. And one would be, well, they didn't feel the pain even if they got stung. My thought on that, though, is you just did away with the purpose of the nature. Then you anesthetized their their uh nervous system why do they have a nervous system um and so I, I think what you end up having to do if you want to have zero pain or suffering amongst humans uh, this is where i diverge from aquinas in my personal thinking is i think you have to basically really axe nature and have a continuous stream of miracles but i wouldn't say it's impossible god can do all things right um mm -hmm. But I think you basically have a force field around Adam and his nature is not really functioning as his nature. So then with regard to death and suffering, John Paul II, he, he died back in, I think it was 04, 05, 05, I believe. He, he had Parkinson's and, and like many great holy people, um, they they suffer a lot, you know, and, and but in the Christian tradition of the saints, going back to Jesus Christ himself, um, the taking on of suffering is not just connected to sin. It's actually seen as a gift so that John Paul's document is called Salvifici Dolores, redemptive suffering. It's like Paul says in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ on behalf of the church. It's not that Christ's sacrifice was not all sufficient. It was, but he wants to allow us to share in his sufferings and, and glorify him in that way. So that, you know, even I have lupus, so there's always some health problem. I woke up a few days ago and couldn't move my back and it still kind of hurts, but not as bad. And thanks be to God for modern medicine. But, um, you know, it, the, the real key, I, as I see it, is not whether you're going to have pain or suffer or even die. You, you have to pass through this world like Christ teaches us. It's how you do it. So in, in the great holy people of our tradition, I think of St. Therese of Lisieux, Jesus Christ, obviously, St. Paul, easy examples. They embraced the cross as the means towards resurrection so that from a robustly Christian perspective, the issue of the origin of suffering and death, I, I mean, I think it's just been there all along. The issue is how are you going to respond? So I think of splitting it into two different ways you could respond. You could accept it as a gift or you could rebel against it. You could um, live it redemptively or you could live it with misery. 
And we all know the difference between those. I think of like, I used to be a runner when I had joints that worked. The no pain, no gain feeling and the runner's high that you get. So in his problem of pain, I go back to Lewis again. He says, I even suppose that Adam and Eve in paradise had something like pain. And he says, but it would have been a, a blessed rapturous pain. It would have elevated them because it was an occasion for the giving away of self. And, and Pope Bennett himself goes so far as to say that in this life, there can be no suffering, excuse me, no love without suffering, that it's a, prere a prerequisite and a gift that allows us to give ourselves. But of course, if there were suffering eternally, that'd be hell. So eventually, like Christ, we have to go through this death, but then we enter the resurrection and our wounds, like his wounds and his side will be glorified. So that's my view in a nutshell. And I've got uh, one final quick one I can throw your way. This is a bit mm -hmm. more metaphysically intense. This is not my view, but I could, it used to be my view and I could get back on board with it if someone told me I had to, you know. Um, mm -hmm. St. Maximus the Confessor is a late church father and uh, 700s basically. And his view is really interesting because you consider that God's in eternity. He's not bound by space and time. In fact, all time is present simultaneously to God. Well, he says that there's been suffering and death around all the time, like I, I think is the case. But he says it was still caused by Adam's sin because God took into account the consequences of Adam's sin already in the creation of the world. So in a nutshell, I think I proposed four or five different possibilities a person could take towards that question. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I like the idea you talk about like the box um, and like for all Christians, like we have that box of like, what's the essential um, things we have to hold to like Catholic Protestant, whatever. Like, there's, there, there's something essential that we have. And from within there, we can say like, Hey, look at these like five different views I have on like um, God and evolution and creation and things like this. And like, be willing to say like, Hey, um, so it'd be like brothers and sisters, you may disagree on these things. Like we can still, we're still playing by the same overall rules and there's something really beautiful um, in allowing that. So. Yeah. It's like, there's um, I think it's Zondervan puts out these little books. I always enjoy them. They're like four views on justification and three views on this. And there's even a couple with regard to evolution that are really good and how to read Genesis. So I, I think that's a healthy project. Mm, it is. One thing I'm really curious to talk about here um, that wasn't really a plan, but you talked about like suffering. And I really liked what you said with your looking at like two different ways of like engaging our suffering. Like one is yeah. misery or two is like a gift. Like I was thinking about even like this morning, I, I was mowing my lawn before I even um, came here. And then I broke the lawnmower because I hit a blade on a rock. And I'm like, oh, it's like, oh this is terrible. I'm going to owe money. Da, da, da. And I'm like, well, I'm just approaching that suffering with misery. I'm just like, well, this sucks. My life's over. Um, and, then, and like, when you think about it and it's nothing compared to like different things that like you talked about, you go through in your own life. Um, when we approach that suffering with like looking at it as a gift, like this life is a gift. I think there's something really important about that because it negates the idea that like all suffering is just this like terrible thing that just is just all intrinsically evil. Yeah, no kidding. No, I think the reason why I'm so I guess convinced or convicted or attracted to the view that I, I propose on my side as distinct from even Aquinas, who's a very venerable thinker is I just think it's more Christian in some respect. I think it emphasizes mm -hmm. the redemptive cross of Jesus Christ. It's not like it's, it's better intrinsically. It's just that I think that if we, I like to, I have a chapter in my book, it's called putting the last Adam first. 
I really think it's important that we put Jesus first. He's the true human being. He, Ece Omo, behold the man. You know, and it's ironic those come out of those words come out of Pilate's mouth. But he, as John likes to do, he in his gospel he has the bad guys speak prophetically, mm-hmm. and um, so Jesus is man who reveals man to himself. And yeah, I mean, I just this morning I I was trying to fix the door. It's still not fixed. That the hinge is messed up and it won't close right. And my arms are all messed up, so I'm up here and I'm cussing you know i i like i can't help it right i try but that's the that's that's romans right like i i don't do the thing i want to do i do the very thing i hate and um i think of like how would mary mother of god have dealt with that or joseph and like not like i did you know Mm -hmm. and um so that really is the key but when i do embrace my suffering well it's so beautiful and it's it's a gift we just have to constantly remind ourselves of that so I, I think also it's hard to formulate this, but I'm going to give it a whirl. I was trying to explain this to my wife and it didn't work for her. So I don't expect it to work for you. Second time's the charm, maybe. What's well, that? Hopefully. <laughs> but OK, so like if I have like I have this nerve pain always running through this arm. Uh, and I could think, well, ultimately, this goes back to Adam. He caused it and not to blame him, but he caused it. But I actually find it more valuable and helpful in terms of living my suffering, if I think, you know, actually, this is the structure of the world that we're finite and part of suffering comes not just from sin, that's part of it, but part of it from our finitude and that it, it's there as a gift to remind me that this world is not the end and that I'm not the center of it and that I can offer this suffering up in union with Jesus Christ on the cross and become more like him then that totally changes if I manage to think about that, the way I deal with this. So it's it's like a way of being with Christ on the cross. And you could still make that compatible with a theory of atonement where the cross is penal, it's a punishment. And da, da, da. But anyway, I, I think of like I'm entering the nature of the universe. Christ is he in whom all things were created, like John, you know, John 1 and Colossians 1.20. So all of creation reflects the logos of Jesus. And I'm entering into that mold of Christ in whom the universe was made and to whom it's all ordered uh, to be redeemed, like Paul says in Romans 8. Yeah, that's great. It reminds me of Lewis's view where he talks about with like pain. He says that pain is a megaphone to a deaf world where he talks about how our finitude, as you were talking about right here and like, um, the things we experience, the frustrations and things like this, this shows us that like, yeah, this isn't enough. You aren't supposed to be perfectly happy in this world. And if you have no pain, um, you're not human at, the, at this point. Like the, the pain that we experience is to remind us and show us that like, hey, you don't have it all figured out and point us to the divine. So I think that's great. I mean, it made sense to me as you were talking about it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So maybe then we could talk about like, how do you see the idea of like God creating through evolution? So if you reflect on like, evolutionary theory we have hundreds of millions of years of biological evolution of creatures um, coming and going and going extinct and new species coming out so how do you like how do you see like through like um seeing like a sense of the divine through this act yeah yeah i i do see the divine through it um i mean i'll go ahead and give you one quote from darwin who wouldn't be the poster boy of christianity on this but (laughs) 
he says there's grandeur in this way of life. The grandeur of God creating these myriad forms out of few, it, it parallels what he does in our own lives and how he, he works gradually with us and thinking of like childhood development. And we begin so small and, and so, uh, you know, ultimately in the womb, we begin unconscious and we gradually awaken and we're already human from the day one of conception. There's already a human system. By the time you have a, you know, an egg's not human, a sperm's not human, but a zygote is human. And you just give it time and nutrition and it's going to develop. So it's not a potential human, it's a human with potential. And so similar with, with life, uh, th there's this gradual development and there's no one moment, you know, species transition, for example, you can have big leaps, big species transitions occur in one mutation during one um, act of, of generation. But um, by and large, it's a gradual. And that's the way it is like, kind of like, well, at what point in my life did I arrive at, I'll pick something random, at being a Kansas City Chiefs fan? Uh, I think it had to do with moving to the Kansas City area. Steelers are still better, but yeah. Well, I, I, it was before the Chiefs were good, though. I'll tell you that. I'm not just one of the jump on the bandwagon guy. <laughs> I could never be a Yankees fan, for example. You can't just decide to like a good team. That's that's an abomination to me. But um, so anyway, I don't know at what point it was, though, if it was 2009, 2010, or at what point did I know I loved my wife before I married her? I was part of obviously the answer. But I'm not sure what that moment was. So there's a gradualness to it, which is beautiful. And to think through how God, he, he gives dignity to creatures. He ennobles us. It gives us the dignity of being causes. So that, I mean, he could have gone through and just created boom, 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 all these species. What we now know today that the ancients didn't know, even if you took the ark very, very literally, you could never fit all the species on any boat. Uh, if you start to consider from bacteria all the way up, I mean, you couldn't even fit one sauropod dinosaur on it probably but um like there were just too many and why did he go through all of these different life forms it seems almost prodigal like he's wasteful in doing so uh but ultimately i think i, I like his name is father nicanor Ostriaco. He, he's a good priest biologist and he he says it's to manifest the divine glory it, it's almost like to just, and if you had all creation at one period, you can never have dinosaurs with humans. It wouldn't work. So he allowed all of creation as much as possible to maximally reflect him. Um, but then this idea going back to how he works through creatures. So I'm thinking about how we have six kids and how we have been true causes of those children. We weren't the primary cause and in classical Christian metaphysics, we call God the primary cause and, and other creatures, creatures are instrumental or secondary causes. Um, and so while we say that God created the soul of a child, if you will, we really did contribute. And so God could have just zapped the children into my wife's womb if he wanted to, or, or better yet, just zapped them right on earth. But instead, he let us, especially my wife, have the dignity of rearing and, and, and literally helping to make that child's body out of what she ate. And it's just wild to think about that. Uh, and, and even with 
as the children grow, I think of my kids are now mowing the yard, which is awesome. Like I'll mow the hard parts. So I've almost arrived in life, right? The kids can babysit, the kids can mow the yard. And um, I mean, I do it better. I do it quicker. I do it with less complaining than they do. But eventually this gives them dignity. So like when they go and they can care for the chickens, they go out and grab the eggs or they pick the salad out of the garden and then they get to eat it. And there's a whole other level of fulfillment that comes by having participated. But it doesn't mean that God wasn't active. Here's the real key in my opinion. It doesn't make God any less present in all of that just because we were doing it. It's not like God does it or we do it. It's always both and. God gives creatures their natures and holds them intimately into being so that they can act through their own powers. And this is part of why St. Augustine says that God is intimior intimo meo. He's more intimate to me than my inmost self. So he's in me. He's moving me. And if he ceased to be upholding the cosmos, it would cease to exist. We would cease to exist. Um, so I'm sure you're aware of, say, the intelligent design movement. And a Christian can certainly subscribe to that. I, I don't. But I, I, to me, one of the areas where I, you know, my friends and I would disagree who you know, hold different views in that area is I just don't think you need to appeal to specific instances of complexity to get God. Um, the classical Christian metaphysics is that God is active just as much in the very, very mundane as he is in the complex and amazing, you know, uh, proteins and their unfolding and their folding. Um, so that God is working through us bespeaks an even more powerful creator. So there's a good book I recommend to viewers. It's called Adam and the Genome. It's a pair of evangelicals. Dennis Venema is the biologist and Scott McKnight is the Bible scholar. It, it does a really nice job on genetics, but I love it how they put it at one point. It's thing about who's the better designer, who's the more powerful and wise one. The one, I can't remember the example they used, but I'm going to use a robot. The one who can make a really neat robot or the one who can make one that make more robots. I, I kind of hate the robot image that I just came up with because creation's not a robot. But the idea is, if I could get you to do it yourself, that's even more powerful than if I did all of it myself, I being God in this analogy. Mm. So that's how I, I kind of think of the beauty of evolution, allowing God to give us creatures room to participate in his act of creation. Mm. Maybe another way to help people listen to you, maybe think about this is thinking about like, it's like recently I graduated college and it's not like I can say like, oh, I did everything. But then, you know, like there's that one test I didn't know that answer for. And God gave me that answer miraculously. Um, there was that night I couldn't sleep and boom, he just knocked me out. And there we go. That's how I graduated college. But we think about it more, um, less like that and more holistically, like really everything I did. Um, even if you can't like find that, like where you put the scientific study in and be like, boom, supernatural proof done. Um, but like every part of that story and all of our stories is really like, providentially guided by God, um, who's like ultimately like a source of our being and not just like a place for um, like expl explanatory gaps. Is, is that yeah. like a fair way of looking at it? That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, I, I know God of the gaps is an easy way to dismiss certain approaches, but I think that is, a, it's helpful, I think, to point out 
that the atheists basically we sometimes as Christians take the atheist bait because they'll say, oh, if we can explain this now, we don't need God. And the Christian just assumes that they're right and gets almost flustered by it. Mm -hmm. And but no, like one of the really interesting things is that um, even if uh, so, here's an interesting one. There's this physicist who's really solid named Stephen Barr. And he has a little book called The Believing Scientist. And it's a, a series of his essays you can find online on first things. But he, um, he points out that with the Big Bang, even if we could explain the Big Bang's mechanisms naturally, it actually still wouldn't disprove God. Uh, and Stephen Hawking thinks it does. He thinks that uh, you know, the universe spontaneously created itself uh, out of nothing, according to the laws of science. The funny thing is, Hawking, brilliant as he is in science and, and God rest his soul, he says the universe spontaneously created itself according to the laws of science. Well, the problem is according to the laws of science, because he just basically said laws of science predate, quote unquote, the universe. Well, in, in a sense, that just proves God, because there has to be God before anything else. Um, another thing that Stephen Barr uses an analogy is um, a bank versus a bank account versus in a bank account with money in it. So in, in a sense, you can think of God in his laws of the universe is like the bank account. Even if there were no money in the bank, no creation, the bank account's still there. And it's, it's a, it's maybe a weak analogy. It's the best we can do, but um, yeah, the fact that there are, gaps filled in actually bespeaks a better designer if you want to think about it from a certain perspective um, i like to use the image of a story as well who's the better author if we think of creation as a book like the tradition does who writes the better play the or story uh uh i just watched top gun maverick as a child of the 80s i i, I love that type of stuff and i enjoyed mm -hmm. the movie and i won't give any spoilers but the, the movie resolves itself, let me just say. It, it doesn't have to have like a eighth generation sci-fi fighter jet come in out of nowhere, deus ex machina to rescue the people. Um, and, and so it, you have to be able to be skilled enough to give the creatures within your own plot the ability to cause the plot's motion without you always intervening. Now, from a certain perspective, I've heard Christians say, well, it's more beautiful and more powerful if God directly intervenes. And, and I could see that argument. Sometimes God does do miracles, right? But if he were to constantly, every time there's a new structure species perform a miracle, I think a lot of people, including myself in the tradition, would say that actually shows that God's not a very good designer uh, because he doesn't have the ability to create nature in such a way that it is able to move itself into being. So if I, as a parent, going back to parental analogies, constantly had to fix my kids' work, you know, I wouldn't have been as good of a teacher and they wouldn't be as good at their jobs. But I can count myself successful when I'm sitting there watching over their work and ever present to them but they then can complete it on their own and have the fulfillment that comes through completing a difficult task. Mm. 
there's a lot of really good things that you brought up here. Maybe something else, um, taking it just a little bit of a different direction, is thinking about the idea of, like, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Um, so it's a very important thing and a very important part of, like, the biblical narrative and something we definitely want to affirm. We can't just um, – so, like, what in your view, when we're looking at, like, Genesis and evolution and things like this, like, what does it mean for us to be made in God's image? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so in the ancient Near Eastern world, the world of the Bible, the image of God, his representative on earth, was the king in these ancient Mesopotamian states. So the Bible does a thing that's very subtle to us, but it was truly revolutionary or better revelatory, is it democratizes the image. It's now saying we're all the image of God. We all represent him on earth. Um, and we are all children of God. You know, only the king, think of Egypt or Mesopotamia, was the son of God. We're all sons and daughters of God. That's a massive revolution of religion right there that God just slapped down in a, a very seemingly subtle way to us because he spoke it through the story we're all so familiar with. Um, and even the word slap down, I mean like a slap down, right? A slap down of the false view. But I don't mean slap down as in he didn't work through human authors because that's actually really important. He worked through the culture and through their literary genius. Um, but as, as far as the tradition goes, we then elaborate on that. Um, that point I just made about the king is actually more of a modern retrieval, thanks to modern knowledge of Hebrew and ancient cultures. But traditionally, and this is still, I believe, true, the, the image of God that makes us unique in creation is our virtue of having an intellect and a will, the ability to truly know and love, especially as Augustine says, to know and love God makes us fully the image of God. Because that's who God is, is the eternal communion of knowing and loving the divine persons amongst themselves. So we're fully the image when we do that with God and then overflowing to other people. Um, and then as far as, you know, that, so that's the image in, in metaphysics and traditional Christian anthropology. Uh, but, you know, I think you could summarize it in the word relationship, the, the ability to truly have relationships is a unique human thing and you know it could be that we'll look out and one day realize you know what dolphins who are probably the smartest creatures out there besides us maybe they're worshiping god but we, as of now we have no evidence of any other creature in having that ability so one way that the tradition talks of that is having an immaterial soul well well for basic Aristotelian biology, everything alive has a soul. It's simply the thing that makes it alive. Only humans have a soul, which is a spirit, which is immaterial. It's not like it's a, a ghost inhabiting your body, like Descartes, say, would think. But it's that dimension of you that's not bound by space and time. And it's why, you know, I could picture... Um, World War II in my head right now, and I could picture the Civil War, and I could picture Rome versus Carthage, and I could picture Star Wars, and I can move across space-time and even fiction instantaneously because my, my intellect, my soul is not bound by space and time, even as in this life it uses my brain in order to function. So anyway, image of God, the ability to know and love and truly be God's image on earth and his sons and daughters. Mm. So I'm wondering, like, how would this reflect, like, when we're reflecting on, like, say, like, evolutionary history? So we think about, like, us humans, 
um, you know, if we think about um, like the model of humans, it seems like, you know, we get one step, like if you over, reflect over the years of human evolution, we get one step closer to what we are today, one step closer, one step closer. It's going to be really hard to like draw a line and say like these people, like these are the people that are maybe made in the image, have a soul, and these other people like are not. So when we're reflecting on like being in God's image and things like this, like how do you reflect on that, especially with regards to like human evolution? It, uh, the the one moment or line to draw is really hard. Mm-hmm. And even here, there's leeway. There's different perspectives you can have. Um, I'll go with a, a, a guy I appreciate again a lot, Father Ostriaco and his Thomistic Evolution book. He draws uh, on an author who's not even at all Christian um, and to show that, look, uh, it looks like language is all or nothing the hierarchical ability of human language is so different from everything else that there was probably one final mutation that took place. Our vocal cords had to be primed. The most of the brain structure of the neural network had to be there, but there are mutations even today. If a person has this inactivated, they won't be able to have language ever. So it could have been that there was one last like puzzle piece, if you will, that fit in line and made everything click. And that could be, but what we do know now, and again, you can see this in places like DC at the Natural History Museum for yourself, is that at least we've had art for 150, 200,000 years. And if you can have art, most people think you're probably human by that point, if you're making cave drawings and making jewelry. And that's when we have the modern structure of Homo sapiens. And there's also Neanderthals who had some jewelry. So you can Within Neanderthals and Homo sapiens and other archaic humans that may be truly human image of God, like the Denisovans in Southeast Asia, um, some you might even classify those as subspecies. So some people will say our species is Homo sapiens sapiens, and then Neanderthals are Homo sapiens Neanderthalensis. But again, you and I have that in us too. Um, and but then you go back farther. So you go to Homo heidelbergensis, and eventually, two million years ago, you have Homo erectus. What's interesting about that is Homo erectus is already making very sophisticated stone tools that uses function as hammers, and they're making fire. So you think no chimp can do that? You know, chimps can make a little straw to suck up termites, which is pretty cool, admittedly. Um, but you know they're not they're not doing this great abstract thought. So somewhere in the line of humans, whether you begin with Lucy, you know, with six million years ago or so, or whether you um, go all the way down to Homo sapiens, at some point there's a massive transformation. But it is it, it could be that it's more gradual than one time. And that is a controversial thing to say, actually, because most of our tradition holds it was one moment. And that, again, could well be it was one moment where that last mutation occurred, because at least in traditional anthropology and metaphysics, we call this hylomorphism in Aristotle, body-soul unity, form-matter unity. A change in the soul will be accompanied by a change in the body and vice versa. So when we talk about infusion of the soul, we're not talking about a ghost being put into a human body, but there already was a soul, a living principle, and something had to happen biologically, especially here in the brain, to make possible the form of true 
human image of God. So if we want to call it language and religion and art, it may have happened one time 200,000 years ago or so. If we want to go and identify that with some of the earlier traits, I, I'm, Homo erectus is a really good candidate around 2 million years ago. Uh, I'll, I'll go back to William Lane Craig. Actually, he took an interesting position. He put it around a million years ago in his judgment. So I think there's a fair amount of freedom in there. Uh, and it, it, it's probably never going to be possible to find the one moment at which mm -hmm. it happened. Even, yeah. if, even if there was one single moment. Um, mm. Yeah. But what the important part, like going back to what's the essential, I, I do think it's easy for Christians to say, well, shoot, we're not special if we came gradually. And my just thought on that, I tell people is like, if you don't think we're special compared to anything else, open your eyes, you know, like even chimp chimps are pretty cool. I, I got to love chimps, but um, the, they're not building skyscrapers, you know, they're, they're not uh, bowing down to God and worshiping our Lord and maker. They don't have that knowledge and ability. Um, so just because there was gradualness in the origin, uh, it doesn't really mean that we're not unique. And I think we shouldn't take the atheists bait on that point either. There's something beautiful about like the art, like thinking about Craig's book, he talked about um, the cave art in France from like 15,000 years ago. And it, it's so beautiful thinking about um, what humans have done. You have to think like, and that's not even super far back when we consider human evolution, but like yeah. there's something really beautiful about what they did. And they have to be huge. Like you can't say those people weren't humans that made those paintings. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I, I, they're better artists than I am. <laughs> and yeah. then Neanderthals are making better art than I could ever make. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's, again, uh, you start to really push incredulity if you think that that's not human. Um, the, the real issue is on the dating, it's going to get older, not younger, you know, uh, because we're never going to have a complete fossil record. And it just like, again, building fire, I don't, I, I don't know that I want to hang my hat on this, but with Homo erectus, I, if, if you have the forethought and the ability to coordinate enough stuff to make fires and transport your wood hundreds and hundreds of yards from one location to a cave, and it seems to imply a level of forethought that is, is, is human. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think that that is really, really neat to ponder how early mankind, especially with the animals, you know, they're, they had a certain reverence and awe for nature and they would go into these dark caves. Like you mentioned, gosh, there's a show I watched. I really, really enjoyed. And I forgot the name of it. It goes into this cave and how I think it was a 50,000 year old cave in France. It wasn't Lascaux, but it was another cave in France and how they went in there, not because it was easy, but because it was hard. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, it's like with worship, you know, sometimes we go out of our way to make worship really beautiful and intricate where you can just go in your room and worship the Lord, like he says with the Our Father, Lord's Prayer. But then like, we want to make it beautiful for God. And there, there's something human about that to give him our full offering that seems to be present to some extent already, um, you know, in, in, in prehistory. Mm. 
Yeah, I think that's great. So this has been such a great conversation, Dr. Ramage. Anything else you want to say um, with regards to like God evolution before we wrap up here? Oh, gosh, there's so much beautiful stuff. But I think we covered a lot of really good bases on this. I mean, I think if there's only one more thing I would point out is this is sort of the epilogue I have in my own book on it is evolution, death, suffering will come to an end, you know, and, and eventually heaven, right? So one of those other areas where you can ponder is what will be the, the state of creation, all these creatures over three and a half billion years that have died, will they be in heaven? It's, it's hard to know. Uh, it's hard to imagine dinosaurs in heaven. Uh, you don't want to get too crude. There's a Calvin and Hobbes about this. My family likes Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip. And I, I think uh, Hobbes is like, you know, they're like, well, will there be tigers in heaven? And well, they won't eat humans. But then Hobbes is like, well, I'm not a tiger if I don't eat, you know, other things. But it raises the question of, will there be all these creatures in heaven? I think of dinosaurs and kids love for them. I, I think for my son, if there weren't dinosaurs in heaven, it wouldn't be heaven. Mm -hmm. We can't know whether the individual creature, the mammoth or the T-Rex or whatever will be there. But I think we can stick, hang our hats with St. Paul on Romans 8, that all creation is groaning for this renewal. And with, with John, you know, the new heavens and new earth, it's, it's going to be a populated cosmos. It's not just us and God and angels hanging out, floating around in space. But we can't say how. Because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, but all of creation somehow will be restored. Mm. And Pope Benedict calls that the final evolutionary leap of the universe. Mm. One that's not natural, but God steps in and does himself and raises creation, foremost our own bodies back to himself. And so I would just leave, it with, leave you guys with that thought. Mm, I love that thought. And it's a great way to wrap it up. I always have like different feelings leaving conversations. And like right now I'm like, I want to go like, it's a beautiful day in Virginia right now. I'm like, I want to go sit and read and just think for like the rest of the day. And will that happen? Almost certainly not. But yeah. I'll, my mood will probably change 15 minutes from now. But like right now, that's how I feel. Cause I've just loved this conversation. It's made me just um, reawaken like the wonder of thinking about just like how amazing this world is and just all the things that we can think and read and pray about. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, Zach. That was beautiful. So have a good day. It's 100 in Kansas today. So there's going to be some sweat of the brow I'm about to go endure. I don't think that that came because of the fall, but my cursing of it certainly is a result of the fall. <laughs> One of my best friends is a farmer in western Kansas, so he always is keeping me updated on his weather there. And I'm like, well, Virginia seems a little bit more better than Kansas, surprisingly, yeah. with regards yeah. to weather. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Rimmage. Really appreciate it. The link to your book is down below. And yeah, okay. thank you everyone for tuning in. Have a good one. God bless. We'll see you next God time. Bless.